So every good story begins with a problem. I don't know, it's like, what kind of start is that? This is the first Sunday of the new year. Like, this is going to be inspirational. I know, new beginnings. Like, every good story, every story worth listening to, worth living, or worth reading about starts with a problem. And you know that's true because any of the books or any of the TV or any of the movies that you watch, like, the reason that you care about them or continue to watch them or continue to keep up with them is because you're interested in the problems and the tension and the concern that the characters have to deal with in those moments in the story. It's what makes an inspirational speaker compelling is because they've traversed some huge, massive obstacle in their life, and now they're going to share with you how there's life on the other side of that thing. Now, filmmakers call this the inciting incident. There's a, there's a term for this. There's a phrase uh, for this, the inciting incident. It is the thing, the event or decision, that begins a story's problem. Everything up and until that moment is just backstory. Everything after it is after it is the story. Stories need that to be compelling. It's the moment that Katniss volunteers as tribute, right? It's the mo- hey, Hunger Games fans here. All right. It's the moment that the cyclone picks up Dorothy's house and takes her to Oz. It's the moment that what? Yeah, what? <laughs> what movie is that? I've never seen that. Uh, Maximus, it's the, it's the moment that Maximus returns home and he finds his entire family has been killed. Like, that's when the real story begins. It all starts with a problem. It all starts with a moment. It starts with something that happens. It changes everything in the script. It alters it from that point forward. It changes everything. And sometimes those are good moments. Sometimes it's the addition of a family member, or sometimes it's a new house, or sometimes it's a new job. But even those good things come with their own subset of problems that they create, or things that you have to deal with at least. And you think, oh, I got pregnant. Yay, that's great. And then a few months later, I'm pregnant. And then nine months later, I'm pregnant. You know, it's like that, that, kind of, that kind of thing. Like even in a really good thing, you still have to deal with things that come along uh, uh, come along with them. Or, for example, they come along with bad moments. You lose someone. You get a bad diagnos- diagnosis. You lose your job. It's those moments in life that you face where it makes you wonder, hey, where is God in the midst of all of this? The inciting incident. Now, you may not, you may want to sell your rights to Hollywood, but you may not feel like you've got the rights to a great story to sell to to Hollywood, but one of the things that we all have in common is that we all have inciting incidents that take place in our life. We all have problems. We all have things that change our lives from some point in the past and everything in the future. And maybe it's a decision that you made that prompted this new beginning or this moment or this inciting incident. Maybe it's a situation that changed. Maybe it's a circumstance that you had no control over whatsoever. But all of us have dealt with, with that. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks with this series called Altars. Because here's the thing. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Bible, people, it's filled with people whose stories start because of a problem. Because of some sort of inciting incident. And time and again, the people that follow God and that trust over him, their response to those moments in their life is that they build altars. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like in our lives. And particularly this morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like to start with a new beginning when we build an altar before God because of our inciting incident. Now, an altar, it's just, it's not really anything fancy. Like, you may have gone to a friend's house or something like that, and they have a little altar in their house to someone, and, and so it might 
be you know, made out of wood or some overlaid with metal or that kind of stuff and look really pretty. But when we talk about altars in the Old Testament, we're talking about a pile of rocks. It was really just that simple. You're walking around, something incredible happens, this amazing event, God does something, you want to remember it, and so you say, hey, look, there's some rocks here, let's pile them together. And you did that to remember it, and it was kind of a semi-permanent structure, and you made a sacrifice there. Uh, It could be just a pile of rocks, it could be rocks stacked nicely, sometimes it was just a big single rock that was there, but it was set there in place as a memento and as a remembrance of what God had done in that moment, in that problem, in that new beginning, in that life-altering space in your life. And so we are going to start at the first altar that was ever made. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you turn to Genesis chapter 8. That's the text that I'll be reading from this morning, where we're going to start with a guy named Noah. Noah was the guy who made the first altar ever, but it came after the, one of the most significant things that has ever happened in the Bible. And many of you are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark. Even if you've never read it in Scripture, you've probably heard some sort of pop culture reference to it. You have a general understanding of what happened. Uh, God decided to uh, wipe the slate clean when it came to the earth, and so he sent a bunch of uh, rain and floods came up, and Noah had built this big box structure that turned into a boat, and he had a bunch of animals in there. There were two of every kind. Somehow God got them into the box, and there were seven of every clean animal, and so Noah was stuck with his family and his kids and and their wives for a year in this ark, and at the end of that, he comes out and he builds an altar. Now, here's the thing. Like, when we think of Noah's ark, depending on your history with the church or your background, if you've ever been in Sunday school, we probably think of it in, in, in one of two ways. Most of us probably think of it like this. This is kind of the children's Bible version of Noah's Ark. And you can see, I, don't, I think you can tell all the animals have, have smiles on their faces. Like it's a really serene, pretty vista there. Noah's just hanging out. He's an old guy at this point. He's hanging out. He's waving to everybody, and he's got a smile on his, place. And so, on his face. And so maybe that's kind of your experience with Noah's Ark. It's kind of kid's Bible version. Like that, that's where, where that's going on, artwork for, for that. Of course, there's a whole other side of Noah's Ark. And so I want to show you a painting from 1840 by Francis Dabney. And this is called The Deluge. And this one's not quite as pleasant. No one's smiling in this one. You can see the ark is up there in the top in the middle, just down from where that lightning is. The moon's kind of shining on it. That box is there. But in the foreground, you see the destruction. You see all the, the things that came to be as a result of the flood that happened. Sometimes maybe we don't think of Noah's Ark as being a story that sure is about animals that were on a boat, but it's also a story about God's wrath and his anger and his judgment and God's relationship with evil and what a holy and righteous God does in in the face of that by necessity. Wipe the slate clean. The other thing, we see this through Noah's altar and why he establishes that is the first thing that he does as he gets off of the box, the ark, is that it's also a story of God's grace. It's also a story of his mercy and his righteousness. It's also a story of God's rescue and his refuge and his renewal in our lives. That even with our inciting incident, our problem, that moment that changes everything, that it can be with God 
a brand new beginning and a start and a fresh way to experience the life that he wants for us. So Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 15, God says to Noah, and this is after the flood and all this has happened, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And I'm going to skip to chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the ark. So Noah comes out of the ark, clean slate, blank canvas, but think about, think about the experience and the trauma that he had just gone through. Think about all the things, the former life that has been washed away, the family, the friends, the experience, the livelihood, everything is gone from Noah's former life. The death that happened, the world that they knew on the outside, all of that's happening on the inside in this box, in this space. They're clinging on to hope. And a year later... They come out to a brand new world, the face of which has been changed, literally. A brand new task that God has given them. And the first thing that Noah does in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this huge, life-changing, incredible, crazy experience, is that he makes an altar. And I, I didn't come up with this phrase or anything, but it's too good not to use. When your life is altered... You can do the same thing as Noah did and make an altar yourself. And it, there, it's, There's not a command in the Bible that says, hey, as a Christian, you need, to, you need to make altars when your life is altered. However, there's a principle here from Noah that we can learn and others over the next few weeks as we talk about them, that when your life is altered, when it's completely changed, when it's wrecked, when there's a new beginning at stake here, that if you were to pause and reflect and give space to who God is and his sovereignty and his will for your life, if you're to make an altar in that moment, that your heart and your mind will be directed to what God wants for you in that space. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go home at some point. Maybe you're not even in the midst of a big life change right now. Maybe you're thinking back on one that has happened in the past or one that you're expecting to have happen in the future. And I'm not saying you need to go, like, pick a corner of the house and put a pile of rocks there. Or go in your backyard and, like, pick, you know, out by the fence, you know, stack a nice thing of stones. And when people come over, you say, hey, here's my altar. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you've got to go sacrifice an animal out on there for God. All that's been done away with because of Jesus and if you have questions about that, we can talk about that after, after the message. But what I am saying is, is that it's, it's worth it to take some space and take some time to recognize who God is and what he is doing in the moment that everything has changed in your life. We may not be commanded to build physical altars, but we can learn from this story. Because here's the thing. New beginnings in our life require new ways of living. They require new approaches. They require new postures and how we handle 
what has happened in our life. And that's what Noah does. That's what God shows us in his word. So here's, the, here's a few things that Noah does. The first thing is, is that Noah pays attention and listens to what God has to say. If you want to build an altar in your life when something has changed, there's a brand new beginning that you're faced with, take the time to listen to what God has to say. Actually hear his voice. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in his word for him to actually get a word in whatever might be going on in his life. Because that's what Noah did. That's how he got to this place to begin with. Is because over anything else and whatever anybody else said as he was spending decades building this ark, he continued to share the news about God and call for repentance. People ignored him. They thought he was crazy for doing this. Yet he trusted in obedience for God and it brought him to a place where he was saved as a result of that, from God's wrath. Noah trusted and was obedient and listened to God's word and his voice. I don't know, like post-ark, he's been in it for a year. I don't know what he's thinking at the end of that. Like Maybe it's get me out of here. I'm stuck with my family too long. You think about being in an enclosed zoo and just the interesting smells that would be a part of that, the interesting tasks that you would have as a result of that, like kind of let your imaginations go with that. Like maybe the thing is he's trying to knock down the door as quickly as possible. And think about what if Noah had bailed out a little too early? Like what would the result of the story be then? And that's what I do. And that's what you do. We don't want to wait for God. We don't want to stop. It's like, hey, there's not movement happening. I'm, I'm, God, you're not doing things quick enough for me. This is the result that I want. This is the thing I'm hoping for. And so I'm going to do my best to try to make that happen. And we haven't paused yet. And we haven't listened for his voice or his direction in our life. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Anybody else? No? Okay. Or, or maybe, maybe we're just scared to get out of the boat. God says, all right, it's time to open the door and come out. Uh, Do you see what just happened out there? You know, it's crazy out there. I'm staying in here. They got used to, after a year, you kind of get used to life like that, right? And things got comfortable. It's like, no, I'm good right here, just kind of sitting in the box. It's safe. Like, that's protecting me from, from the destruction of the world. So I'm, I'm just going to sit right here. But God has called him out and said, no, you got to trust and say, it's time to get out of the boat. Whatever it may be, whether it's staying in the boat or getting out the boat, trust and obey and listen for God's voice in your life. It starts with prayer and, and wondering, hey, when the big things happen in our life, is our immediate reaction is to try to freak out and take care of things on our own, or is it to pause and to think and reflect on what God may be doing in that moment? Is it in prayer and saying, hey, God, can you give me help here? You know, show me what you want me to see through this and experience through this. What is your will in this place? Maybe the biggest thing for you in establishing an, an altar, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's simply reading his word and understanding that he's preserved his, the Bible, his scripture, his word for us over 2,000 years, longer than that. And, and it teaches us something about who he is and his nature and what he wants and what his will is and putting those things into practice and actually saying, hey, in the midst of this, whatever this change might be, I'm actually going to start believing what God has to say and trusting in that and being obedient for that. New beginnings require new postures, and it causes us, and it's got to start with us listening to God. One of the things that reading God's word daily and being in his word regularly in our life is it moves us from our fantasy world into the reality of what we need to deal with. And I know some of you might think, wait, Bible, fantasy, reality, that's going to do you have that backwards. Now, here's the thing. So often we want to think about life in, in, in terms of how we want them to be and how we wish they were, but we don't deal with the reality 
of how they are and what we need to do for things to be different, especially the things that God calls us to and wants for us. Noah takes the time and he builds an altar and he's there because he has listened and he's trusted and been obedient to who God is. So he makes this pile of rocks and then Noah takes some of these clean animals. He's had seven of all the clean animals that are good for him and his family to eat. And instead of saving those and keeping them up, because it's going to take a while to uh, plant that vineyard, he's, he's going he's gonna to take some of those animals that he can eat and he sacrifices, him, fa- sacrifices them to God in worship to him. And that's the thing, th- second thing. We need a posture of listening. We need a posture of sacrifice as well. An altar is a place of offering. It's open hands. It's us coming to God and saying, you can do more with this than I can. If it's nothing else, an altar is a place of sacrifice in our lives. It's giving up whatever we think is most important to us. See, sometimes in those moments of change and those new beginnings, the things that we have on the altar are there without us choosing. They're involuntary. We didn't want that thing to happen. We didn't want the circumstances to take place. We wouldn't choose this path for our life. We wouldn't choose for this change to come along, and yet it did, and it's there, and we don't have a choice. Trust what God will do with that. There is a story on the other side that he has for you in that. Sometimes it's voluntary sacrifice, and sometimes that can be the toughest thing for us to see and to put in perspective when it comes to God. You think, you know, two of the biggest things that motivate us or, or take up all of our time, you talk about wanting to see the condition of your heart, you kind of look at your calendar and you look at your checkbook. Those are the two things. Like one of the things that takes up most of our time is our work and how much stock we put in that, especially guys like we put, you know, all of our uh, machismo into, into that, like what we're able to achieve as far as our work and how successful we are and all, all those kinds of things. And, and not that all of that's bad, but consider the fact that God can do more in six days than we can in seven. And, and how, how we choose to use our time and what we pull, our, pull, all our, pull all of our time and efforts and resources into, and that can, God can do so much more than us. Or think about finances. Think about the fact how God does so much more with 10% of what we have than we can ever accomplish with 100% on our own. The things that he does and accomplishes and how he works through the kingdom in those ways. It's an act of worship. It's us coming and saying with open hearts and open hands and open minds, saying, hey, whatever we have is yours. And whatever you want to do with that, whatever your will is for that is yours. It's not coming to church for an hour, even if it's really cold. That's not the sacrifice. There you go, God. We, man, I made it out. It was negative degrees this morning, and I came to church. I'm like, there's, there's my second. No, no, it's a life that we give to him. It's a community that we come together that's all for God. I mean, we're the ones who benefit from it as a result, but it's for him. And so we've got to ask ourselves, hey, can we give over to him what's most important to us? I mean, for Noah, it was everything. It was his formal livelihood. It was former life and family and friends and hobbies and everything that he had to begin with. And maybe he had the bowling alleys, you know, before the flood. And then now those are gone. Maybe you finally need to give up being a Cowboy fan or a Redskins fan. That's a <laughs> coffin. <laughs> Maybe it's your family. 
Maybe it's your work. Whether or not you and I are intentional about the altars that we could create in our lives, we're building them and we're sacrificing something. You look at the, the moments that happen, the major turning points in your life, and there's been an altar built there. And some of you have been sacrificing to it long past its expiration date. Because you look in the past and you've allowed that to control you and determine the direction of your life much more than you've ever given it over to God and trusted him with that in that moment. And the things that we end up sacrificing to are not to God, but they're things, or maybe ourselves, who sacrifice ourselves to ego or anger or lack of self-control or laziness or whatever it may be in our lives, but we have not sacrificed ourselves and given that over to God so that he can take that new beginning and change it into something that's worth living out. The sacrifices that Noah made in following God and trusting him and his word weren't just the animals he could eat, but it was also his family and his friends and his previous life and everything that came with it that were given in sacrifice because it put him in a posture of recognizing the sovereignty of God. So you could read Genesis 8, uh, verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma for the sacrifice and just assume as any reasonable person that God is really fond of smoked and grilled meats, which he is. I mean, we, those are delicious, and so that makes total sense. But that phraseology and the reason that it says that it's not like, oh, I just really like the smell of burning meat. No, it's, it's a recognition that Noah was giving everything over to God's sovereignty in that moment. And God accepted that offering. We need a posture of listening. We need a posture of sacrifice. And all of that leads into a posture of gratitude and recognition that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that we, he is trustworthy, that we can give everything over to him in our lives. It requires us to put God first and make him central in our lives Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Noah was given the biggest task in all history. God literally gave him the world as a clean slate. Noah was given a monumental task. Go, multiply, like do your thing. That's great. Go live your life. And he could, could have hopped right to it, but the first thing he did is he took a knee. And he recognized God. He elevated him above himself. He worshiped him, gave gratitude by pausing and thanking and praising him. And when we come to a new beginning, we need a posture of gratitude. We need to see what God has done in the past. We need to be grateful and worship him in the present. We need to trust him in the future. Noah made an altar. God made a rainbow and gave a promise and said, hey, things are not going to happen like they just did. It was a result of the evil and how I had to respond to this because of, my, because of my nature. But Noah, because you have trusted yourself, you're everything with me. Not only are you going to receive a promise, but you're also going to receive a blessing. See, when you allow God to alter your life, he positions you for his blessing. That's what Noah did when he took the time to make that altar. That blessing that God promises Noah in chapter 9, verse 1, follows a posture of listening, sacrifice, and gratitude. When your life is altered, make an altar. 
the whole Noah's Ark thing, like, that's tough, I think, especially because of, depending on where you are when your relationship with God, you think, man, um, all the death and destruction, like, how could God do this? We talk about love, we talk about grace, we talk about mercy. This was a big story about God's judgment and wrath and anger and all that kind of stuff. And I think it comes, our, the thing that makes our relationship to that story so tough is um, maybe not even necessarily a misunderstanding about who God is, but a misunderstanding of what evil is and what sin does and what it looks like and how depraved a world becomes when it completely, and people, a person, a heart becomes when God is completely rejected and cut out and ignored in a life. Sin is simply missing the mark. Say, man, I'm, I'm shooting everything I got, like I'm trying as hard as I can, but like I'm not directed, I'm not pointed in the right direction. And that's what the world looked like. And, and historically, like I don't think we even understand or have a clue of how evil people were and how they treated each other. The type of, the way that culture interacted. And the fact that God was left with no choice because of the choices that people had made in that moment. See, even we can recognize in our lives, when we're trying to be the best at something, and I think most of us have some sort of thing that we want to be the best at, like most of us are saying, I want to be terrible at everything. No, you have something, like you want to be better, and you want to be, you want to be the best you can be, and you want to beat everybody else at that, whatever, whatever it looks like, and not just a competitive thing, but you want, to, you want to be perfect at it. And yet none of us can be at anything that we try. And it's a recognition that we can't do that on our own, and that we need God in order to make that happen. And Noah trusted in that. And as a result, his life and all of humanity was changed from that point forward. See, it's interesting that Noah, he's not just mentioned in the Old Testament, he's also talked about the New Testament as well. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, uses Noah as a very interesting example. And I just want to read to you what he says in verse 20. It says, To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, Peter got it wrong. They were saved through a box, right? The ark saved them. That's the thing. Now, the water was the destruction thing. Now, Peter says they were saved through water, and he continues on. He says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. That's kind of that's kind of weird connection there, Peter. This is not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the connection that Peter is making to Noah's story and why it's significant for us to understand who God is and his character and his nature. Is that God is a holy and righteous God, and he has no choice but to respond to evil and sin and wrath and holiness and judgment. However, God sends Jesus as a free gift for all of us so that 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 wrath and judgment, it doesn't wash over us. Like we don't get the consequence that we deserve. In fact, that water becomes a cleansing water. See, baptism was one of those things that we celebrate at Velocity because it's, a, it's, a, it's like an altar. It's the starting point on the journey of faith where we, the slate is wiped clean. We have a brand new beginning. 
It's a past, present, and future offering that if, if you've done that, like that's the status that you are in. And if that's something that you've been putting off and holding off on and stuff, it's, it's not something you've done at this point, like that's, that's the significance that God brings for us. It's like, hey, I've taken care of this through Jesus, and it's a free gift. This is what I'm offering to you, is that you get the result of my love and my grace and my mercy, despite the fact that I'm a holy and righteous God because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that gift is available to all of us. And so here's the thing. If, you're not a, if, if you've never been baptized before, man, let's talk about that and let's, let's get that on the schedule. Like, let's take care of that now. Uh, we'll chip out some ice in the James River, right? Take, take care of that. We'll be good. If, you, if you've done that before, make sure that in the significant moments in life that you are carving out space for that altar, putting yourself in a posture of listening, sacrifice, and gratitude that God has already taken care of everything. And this is not only a new beginning for this life, but it's a new beginning for the life to come as well. It's one of the reasons why we gather together every week at Velocity and worship and we sing songs and we talk about God's word and we take communion together because it's a reminder for us. It's an altar, it's a memorial of a significant event, the most significant event is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again to become a living sacrifice so that we could have a refuge and we could be rescued and we could be redeemed. So as we do that now, uh, let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, this time of worship and we thank you for um, a moment in the midst of the cold and all the other things that are waiting for us in life, for us to have a space that is completely dedicated to you and to your glory and to listen to you, to give ourselves as a sacrifice to you and to come in gratitude for who you are as a sovereign and holy and merciful and gracious and loving God. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for this moment that we have right now where we focus on what he's done for us and how we get to respond because of what your Holy Spirit does in us. God, we thank you for this time of worship and of praise and of confession and communion. And we ask that you are pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.